it. I've got to apologize. Uh, I want to tell you a little story. And this is a true story. And it happened to me. And I happened to be presiding over a, a Sunday morning service in the city of London, Ontario. And I said that it gave me much pleasure to inform those who were at the meeting that morning that brother so-and-so was sick in bed. Everybody smiled just as you are here this morning. There was only about ten of us, I suppose. But I swore up and down that I did not say that. What I said it was that it gave me great displeasure to have to announce that brother so-and-so was sick. And it, no, wait, no. I said... You know, I was real happy that he was there. And, uh, you know, to this day I deny it, but I guess it was true. Yesterday, in our closing uh, parable that we covered, uh, being in a hurry that, I mean, I'm not trying to make an excuse, but it seems that Several of my family came and flagged me down for this, as well as some other brethren, and uh, I want to apologize this morning if I left the wrong impression in the explanation of the unmerciful servant. It seems that I left the impression that our, our sins that have been forgiven could be reinstated against us. What I was trying to say, or the point that I wanted to leave with you, brethren and sisters, was that that we have in our Lord's Prayer to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I'm by this association of the words, he confronts us with our duty to others every time that we ask for for forgiveness of ourselves. And I believe I said that it was a good test of our standing in the matter whether we are able to make our forgiveness to others the very measure of the forgiveness that we request of ourselves. 
Now, whether I said this or I didn't say it, if I, if I didn't leave the right thought with you, I am sincerely sorry. And I apologize to the Bible school here in its entirety. The remark which, with which Jesus concludes this parable that we were speaking of yesterday is so decisive. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do unto you if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. I don't know whether I like this light on here or what. It just hits there and bounces in my eyes and I can't see my notes. Maybe that's what happened yesterday. <laughs> that parable, by the way, was taken from the 18th chapter of Matthew, commencing at the 23rd verse, which Brother Blair was so kindly to inform me this morning. I studied it at home and made notes, and I never jotted down where it was. Then he asked me where it was, and I said, you better find out for yourself, you know. <laughs> this, mor this morning, brethren and sisters, I'd like to take a little time, all of us, and consider the parable, and you all know it, frontwards and backwards, of the ten virgins. This is taken from the 25th chapter of Matthew, verses 1 to 12. Sometimes I don't talk any faster than Ernie, but other times I do. This is probably the last and perhaps the most interesting of all the parables. And a knowledge of the truth as distinguished from everyday orthodox theology is particularly necessary to be able to understand it. This particular parable cannot be made to fit the beliefs of today that we see in men and women those who believe that they go to heaven and for those that believe that they go to hell when they die. There is no way 
that this parable can fit that thinking. It is only understood in the light of the doctrine that we hold, in the light of the doctrine that the return of Christ to this earth is necessary to the renewed life and the glorification of his people. This parable or maybe we should say this doctrine is the keynote supplied in its very first word where it says then then shall the kingdom of heaven then This, brethren and sisters, is a question of time for the apprehension of which we are directed back on what has gone before. For it says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins. And what does that bring forth amongst us when we say, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be like unto ten virgins? This then brings forth, does it not, a question, When? The answer of the context is free from all absurdity. For it says, the Lord of that servant shall come. He shall come in a day when he looketh not for him. That is when. And he shall come in an hour that he is not aware of. And what shall happen? And he shall appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. Or he shall be cut off. And it goes on and says, Then shall there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what does the word then mean at the commencement of this parable? It means then, when the Lord returns, 
That's what it means. Having in view the actual nature of the coming of the Christ that we are all waiting for, it becomes easy to see the bearings of the parable in all directions, does it not? At the crisis of his approach, the members of the household, and that's all of them, it's not just a portion, it's all of them. The members of the household then are like ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. As far as I know, there is nothing in the number 10 except that it was the usual number of bridesmaids that took part in the marriage ceremony and in the practices of a wedding at that time in that country. And they performed a part unknown to our customs. Their business was was to meet the bridegroom on his way to fetch the bride from her father's home. They had to go so far on the journey or down the road, and then they had to wait. This was their custom. The arrival of the bridegroom was usually at midnight. And this, of course, required a further use of the lamps. And the hour was always uncertain, almost always causing them to wait until the bridegroom cometh. Now, if the waiting was a long period of time, the lamps were liable to go out unless they had brought a supply of oil besides what they had in the lamp or what the lamp contained. And anyone with an unlit lamp was considered by etiquette of the country at that time as much as unfit to take part in the ceremony as anyone in this day and in this country should omit coming properly attired to the wedding. 
with an improper dress, improperly attired. In what way the household of Christ at the time of his return are like virgins who have gone out to meet the bridegroom will be instantly appreciated by everyone who knows the truth. It is the very peculiarity of their position that they have gone forth They have gone forth to wait for, to wait for Christ. And in this way, we are speaking of modern people or institutions, though there are such that we know of. It is profitable to look at the matter from the apostolic viewpoint only. The writings of the apostles define the matter in a way for all of us to be able to trust. They tell us that the saints have come out from among the people. We have come out from among the people of the world. The world who knows not God. We are a peculiar people whose job it is to wait for the Son of God from heaven. That's how peculiar we are. who to them that look for him shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. However many or however few may be truly answerable to this description here in the 20th century, this is the characteristic, this is the attitude of the house of Christ ever since his departure from his disciples on the summit of the Mount of Olives nearly 2,000 years ago. Brethren and sisters, ever since Christ left, the believers have one and all gone forth to meet the bridegroom. And so, as with any average company of bridesmaids, so with these. Half had been wise 
and the other half foolish. As far as I'm concerned, half is only a rough estimation. I don't think that it signifies one way or the other. The folly of, of the foolish virgins consisted in not taking a supply of oil for the replenishing of their lamps. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps also. And so the corresponding wisdom and folly of the antitypical virgins is not difficult to understand when we discern the nature of the light by which they wait in the darkness for the coming of the bridegroom. Every one of them had a lamp. Only five were furnished with oil. The others were not. Light is truth in the two aspects revealed within the scriptures. Paul speaks of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, does he not? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And men are light bearers as they declare the knowledge of God. Let us remember this one point, brethren and sisters. Truth is something done as well as something believed. Both light and truth are thus the opposite of evil deeds. As Jesus himself declared in John 3, 20 and 21, Every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. The light is the understanding of the truth. The understanding in the truth in the love thereof. The oil that feeds this light is the word of God's truth. Those who light their lamps and go forth but take no supply of oil in their vessels, who are they? 
They are those who are delighted with the truth at the first reception of it. But do not keep their interest. It drains from them. They don't keep their interest thereof. They do not do their readings. They do not do the readings of the word of God in which this light has its source. And neglect in, in attending the assembling of the brethren which have been enjoined for edification. The word is the, is the oil which is being combusted in the mind and in the thoughts. Sheds forth light as Jesus commands. Let your light so shine. And to let the word of Christ let it dwell within each one of us richly. Paul exhorts this and is therefore to keep oil in the vessel with the lamp. This is how we do it. As in the natural, so also in the spiritual. Combustion involves then, does it not, our consumption? If we do not consume it, there will be no combustion. The life of faith and the life of obedience uses up the motivating power which the mind then furnishes in the memory of the word. And if this is not renewed in our reading, and by our prayers, and by our everyday thoughts, the oil fails. And sooner or later, brethren and sisters, sooner or later, the lamp shall fail. It will go out. Now, while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. It tells us that. This cannot mean then, can it? It cannot mean spiritual sleeping. For the spiritual sleeping would mean that they are all foolish together. And so in what other sense then has the household of Christ slept in his absence? in the sense in which Christ is the first fruits 
of them that slept. They have all died, speaking of them generally. It is true there will be some who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. But the number of such is so insignificant in relation to the multitude that no man can number that they are not taking into account in this particular parable, in my opinion. As regards the apostles and the whole generation of disciples contemporary with the parable, those who in a special sense went forth to meet the bridegroom, absolutely all of them slumbered and slept. They all went to their graves and they are now asleep in Christ. Awaiting the awakening proclamation that is next referred to here in this parable. For we read next that at midnight there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Midnight is just before the breaking of dawn. Just before morning begins. And in relation to the coming of Christ, it is the darkest hour of the night that prevails during his absence. Brethren and sisters, we are at this time We are in such an hour. When misapplied science is banishing all the faith from the earth, and when the brotherhood is at a, an extremely low ebb as the brotherhood are jeopardizing the truth, as we know it. Jeopardizing the truth of the gospel dispelled by the prophets and even dispelled by Christ's own disciples. We are jeopardizing this. 
And so it tells us, at such an hour as this, the appointed Gentiles The appointed Gentile period, having some of them run out, and as well as many others nearly so, then shall the cry be raised. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. It is a cry that awakes the sleeping virgins. Therefore, it is not a human movement of any kind, is it? Some have imagined that the resuscitation in our age of the doctrines of the second advent is the midnight cry. It is evidently something much more than this, in my opinion, that is meant. For the sleeping virgins, wise and foolish, they arise. They all awake from their long sleep. They come forth from their graves by the resurrection power put forth at this period of time. And what power is this? It is the power of Christ which he has received over all flesh. A power in response to which in the form of a command as at the tomb of Lazarus the dead come forth. And the parable shows here that when this happens, the bridegroom is on his way. And a herald proclamation going forth before him. And who, brethren and sisters, who are the bearers of the herald proclamation? Jesus answers, saying, he shall send forth his angels with a trump and with a great voice, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds. This is found in Matthew twenty-four thirty-one, And the angels then, who have had to do with Christ, own resurrection have to do with that of the sleeping servants. By this authority and by this power they awake these from their long sleep which to them has been but for a moment. And they summon them to a meeting with the bridegroom.
And they all arise and trim their lamps. Never so earnestly was this done by them before. Furbishing up memories. Reviewing the ways of their probation then. Fixing their minds on the truth. Casting themselves in prayer. Casting themselves on the Father's mercy. And the foolish who went to sleep with empty vessels will find them still in the same state in which they went to sleep, empty. Everyone will rise at the resurrection in the very same spiritual state in which death overtook them. And so dismayed now at their poverty-stricken condition, they throw themselves upon the sympathy and upon the support of their spiritually-minded brethren and sisters. What does it tell us they say? It says, give us of your oil. But it's too late. The most spiritually-minded will have enough to do to sustain themselves here at such a crisis. The time has passed for looking to others or for to help others. All will have to look to themselves for the dreaded judgment. For the judgment seat will have passed. And what are they told? They are told to go rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. All will be so really and so natural at the resurrection. And there may even be such time and deliberation in the proceedings that it may even seem or it may even appear practical to do something to remedy the spiritual poverty. But all the response the wise can make to those who are so frantic 
is to do the best they can for themselves while as yet they are not in the Lord's presence. Now remember I said this may appear this way. Because we are told while they went to buy what happened. While they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him. They went in with him to the marriage. Now there may be an attempt on the part of the self-condemned during this interval between emergency from the uh, grave and or the emergence from the grave and the appearance of the judgment seat to make good on their shortcomings. But while engaged, the actual summons to Christ's presence has arrived to those others who have been assembled. And these may be accepted, and the others afterwards arrive to find that the kingdom is closed against unavailing cries of, Lord, Lord, open unto us. The dramatic details of the resurrection era are not revealed, but some of them may be shadowed in such a parable as this that we've been speaking of this morning. The general object of the parable is plain. And what is that? It is to provoke Habitual preparedness for the Lord's return on the part of all of us who call him Lord. This is the application then, brethren and sisters, for Christ says himself, Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. And what I say unto all, I say watch. Watch therefore is Christ's counsel to us. Be on the alert, not so much in looking for the coming one as in, the recon as in recognizing the need for being ready to meet him when the call comes. We are all looking for Christ's return, but the question is, are we ready?
preparation is continuous, which calls for patience and it calls for perseverance. Procrastination is a thief of opportunity as well as being a thief of time. And opportunity closes with the coming of sleep. There will be times is a vain cry, or there will be time is a vain cry. For not only is there irreplaceable loss, but such an attitude lulls the mind into a false security. There may be time. Ye know not the day, nor do you know the hour of Christ's coming. Brethren and sisters, only today is ours. Let us use it. Thank you.